Welcome, and thanks for joining us at the Central Baptist Podcast. Today, Pastor Barton teaches on the Lord's Prayer and explores how this simple prayer has the power to transform our lives and shape our relationship with our Heavenly Father. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message. The scripture reading is Matthew 6, 5 to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're in a series on prayer. Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, Lord, we, we've kind of seen you pray. We know we're supposed to pray, but we're not exactly sure how to do this. Lord, teach us to pray. And when Jesus said that, or when they said that to Jesus, Jesus did not say to them, hey guys, prayer's really hard. It's like kind of finding your way through a jungle and eventually if you hack your way long enough, you will figure it out. That's not what he did at all. He gave guidance to his disciples and he gives guidance to us today. When we become Christians and we start wanting to learn how to pray, he gave us guidance. Really what he did, as we said before, is he blazed a path through the jungle, a path The Lord's Prayer is kind of like the light for the path. And so for 2,000 years of church history, the church has always said, do you want to learn how to pray? There's many ways that the scriptures teach us how to pray. But this is the ultimate framework. This is what Jesus gave us, and we call it the Lord's Prayer. It's the path of prayer. It shows you how to pray. So we got to learn how to walk it. And so what we're doing in this series is we're saying, what does the Lord's Prayer teach us about how to pray. Well, last week we began on the first line of the prayer, our Father in heaven. We learned that we are allowed to boldly, confidently approach the God of the universe through Jesus Christ as our Father. He loves us. He cares for us as, our, as his children. He is the one in the heavens, the powerful God who we can trust to come to in prayer. And we come to him with reverence and honor because he is the one in the heavens. So we've begun in prayer, our Father in heaven. Now the question is, what do we say next? What's the next part of prayer? I think usually for us, we begin to go to our requests. 
So what are we going to ask God for? Are we going to say, okay, God, I need a job, so can you please provide that? Are we going to pray for somebody who has got some sort of a, a health issue going on? Uh, what should we pray for? Should we pray for a parking spot on Saturday at Costco? Don't even bother. There's some prayers God doesn't answer. He just says no. That was your fault for going to Costco on Saturday. So what do you, what do you pray for next? Well, what, is, what is this next thing that you are to ask God for? Well, again, we are not left to try to make our own path through the jungle to hack our way. Jesus instructs us. Jesus shows us the path. He shows us what we are to pray for first. Jesus says there is one request that is to be at the top of your list, a supreme request, an ultimate request, a request of first priority that should dominate your prayer life. It is above all other requests. You're to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And yet I must say, from my own life, especially earlier in my life, and just many years in the church, I would say rarely do I hear Christians praying, hallowed be your name. Rarely. In fact, I would say in my own experience, especially early on, I would say this is the most neglected part of the Lord's Prayer. We all know what it means to pray, forgive us our sins, we can jump to that one. But hallowed, I think, I think part of the problem is we're not actually sure what it means. I mean, this word hallowed, or if you're going to want to go Shakespearean, hallowed. Now, hallowed be thy name if you want to get a little more King James language. Big word, sounds great. What, what does that actually mean? Does it have something to do with Halloween? What is this? And name, hallowed be thy name. What, we're not, I think it's that we're not exactly sure what it means, and so therefore, it's not the supreme request in our prayer life, and so we don't hear it all that often. And so we just kind of skip past it, because we know what it means to pray for our daily bread. I know what it means to, to pray for work and to pray for housing and all these. We know what it means to pray for the forgiveness of our sins. That's super obvious to us. But I think half the problem is we just don't know what hallowed be thy name actually means. And so we skip that part. But we cannot escape the fact that when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray, Jesus said, okay, here's how you should pray. Here's the framework. And after our Father in heaven, here is the supreme request that you are to make, the thing that should dominate and be forefront in your minds. You can't escape the fact that he said, here it is, you are to pray, hallowed be your name. So I want to camp out on this because this is the model of prayer. Clearly, according to Jesus, it's to be the first request. I want to camp out on it, and I want us to work this through a little bit, a little more heavier on the teaching today, but I think what's going to happen is if you get it all and it comes together in your heart by the end of this, your heart is going to be leaping to say, oh, I'm going to be praying that all the time. So what does it mean? Why is it so important? And more practically at the end, how and when do we pray this? So to understand what it means, I first of all want to make three brief observations. The first observation clears up something that I think Christians are always making a mistake about with this line. I made this mistake for many years. For a long time, I thought this line was a follow-up to our Father in Heaven, and it's an expression of worship. As if we're praying, our Father in Heaven, I worship you because your name is holy. You are a holy God, and I worship you. Now, that's certainly not wrong to pray. It's great to pray. Pray it all you want. That's fantastic. That's just not what's going on here. That's not what hallowed me thy name is. It's not an expression of our worship to God. 
Rather, here's the observation, hallowed be your name is not an expression of worship, it is a request. It is a request. We are asking God to do something. We're asking him to hallow his name. We're praying, Father in heaven, if you want to paraphrase it, the first thing we're asking you to do is to cause your name to be hallowed. Okay, so it is a request. That's the first brief observation. For me, when I first learned that, complete revolution in my thinking. Secondly, notice that the main point of this request is not help us to hallow your name, help us to do it, though that'll be a part of the answer to the prayer, and that's included within it, but that's not actually the main point of the request. Rather, it's, Father, you cause your name to be hallowed. So we can say this as the second brief observation. This is a request for God to cause his own name to be hallowed. So we're not really... I mean, he'll, he'll answer it probably by working in our lives, but it's not a request to say, God, I want you to do something for me. It's us asking God to do something almost for himself. We're asking you to cause your name to be hallowed. So Dale Bruner, uh, a Bible commentator, summarizes it well. He says these words. We not only ask God to be God, we ask God to cause God to be God. That's a lot of gods in there. We're asking God to cause himself to be hallowed, that everyone would see who he is as God. Okay, that's the second observation. Here is the third one. This is a huge one. Maturing in prayer means developing a deeper concern for God's glory than for our own needs. It's supposed to be then. For God's glory than for our own needs. I want you to notice in the Lord's Prayer, there's an order. We do not begin. Jesus said, you can pray for your bread, forgiveness, and pray for protection. Those are the last three requests. But he teaches us that when we want to mature in prayer, we begin with God first. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Just like the Ten Commandments, they begin first of all with God, and then they move to things like, you know, shall not commit adultery. But first, you shall have no other gods before me. The chief concern is for God and his glory. So J.I. Packer, I think, puts this perfectly. He says, lesson one is to grasp that God matters infinitely more than we do. It's not that we don't matter. It's just that God matters infinitely more than we do. So some years ago, this revealed to me my great need to mature in prayer because, as we said in the very first week, we all begin to pray like little children. And there's nothing wrong with this whatsoever, but we're like two-year-olds. We're very self-centered, self-indulgent. We just express what, what we think we need, and so we give it up in prayer. Again, nothing wrong with that. Our Father loves us and cares for us, and he delights when his children open their mouths and speak to him, just as any good parent delights when their two-year-old speaks to them, even if their two-year-old does need to learn to mature. So that's never wrong. We shouldn't take from this series, oh, there's a strict way to pray, and if you go outside of this, whoo, God's not listening. Not at all. Open your mouth and start speaking to him and pray. But here's the follow-up. It's perfectly fine for a two-year-old to be self-absorbed and to just express what the two-year-old wants. It's not perfectly fine when you're 50. We all need to learn how to mature in life, right? And so it's the same thing spiritually speaking. Perfectly fine to bring whatever request, to just jump into prayer. Father, I need the help with this. No, no problem. But as we begin to mature, Jesus says, here's how I want you to mature. When you pray, 
I actually want you to begin somewhere other than yourself. I want you to begin with God, with his name, his, his kingdom, and his will. So what changed everything for me was grasping that for Jesus, the master of all prayer, the most important thing in all the universe that I can ask for, the supreme request is that the Father's name would be hallowed on the earth as it is in heaven. So those are the first quick just observations. It's a request. Uh, it's, it's to be something that we come before God and we are saying to him, okay, God, you matter more than us. And as we are learning here that we are to have a deeper concern for God and his glory than for ourselves. Those three brief observations. Now, let's get into the request itself. And I want to ask two questions. What are we talking about with this God's name thing? And then, most importantly, what is this strange word, hallowed? All right? So, first then, what does it mean to pray about God's name? God's name. The name of God is not the combination of the letters G-O-D. You know, God is actually a title, the supreme being. It's not his name, it's his, it's his title. He is God. So, we can put it this way. God's name refers to who God is and what he is like. Whenever you're reading about, you know, for the sake of his name he did this, or the name of God, it's, it's not like a, it's referring to who he is and what he is like, his character. So, for instance, God gave many names for himself in the Old Testament, all of which together are meant to show you what kind of God he's like, what kind of character he has. One of his names would be Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. What is he communicating with that name? He's communicating many things, but one thing he was teaching people is, I'm not like the other gods who delight in violence and bloodshed and war. I do not delight in death and violence. I am a God of peace, and what I want for people is for humans to flourish. I am Jehovah Shalom. So his name reveals his character, what he's like. So when we refer to God's name, that's what we're asking, what we're talking about. So in the Lord's Prayer now, we're asking God, would God, would you cause who you are, your character, what you're like, would you cause all of that to be hallowed on the earth as it is in heaven? So that's what we mean we're talking about God's name. Now, another little piece to the puzzle. I know lots of little teaching pieces, but it all adds up so we can understand it well. Here's the second question. What does hallowed mean? To hallow something, as we're going to see here, to hallow something means that something is holy. To hallow comes from the word holy, which means set apart. If something is holy, it is set apart. So what we're doing is we're saying God is holy. We're saying you're completely set apart from everyone and everything else. There is no one like you. You're set apart. You could have other synonyms here. We're praying that God would glorify his name, show that he, he who he is, is the greatest. He's set above everything else. Glorify your name. Cause your name to be honored. Cause your name to be treated properly. Cause who you are to be known, that everyone everywhere would treat you the way you ought to be treated and worship you and know you. So to put it all together now, all these little teaching pieces, Jesus is teaching us that the first thing we are to do in prayer after we address God and come to him and worship as our Father in heaven is to ask him for something. And there's be one request above all other requests at the forefront of our minds, the supreme request, the ultimate request, our greatest concern 
is to ask God, God, Father in heaven, cause your name to be set apart. Cause who you are to be glorified among the nations on the earth. Cause your name to be revered so everyone sees there's no one like you. You're glorious in your grace, your love, your power. Show who you are. Cause your name to be hallowed on the earth as it is in heaven. That is what we are asking for. Okay. Now, if you're still with me on all this, if you're tracking, you're thinking ahead, maybe a question comes to mind. Why would we need to pray for the Father's name to be hallowed when he's already holy? He's already set apart. He's already this. I mean, God's already holy. He's already full of glory. He cannot be more holy than he already is. He's holy, holy, holy. You can't be more holy than that. You can't be more set apart than he already is. He's God. So why would we ask him then to cause this to happen? Here I think John Stott is a great help. Here's what he writes. His name is already holy and that it is separate from and exalted over every other name. But we pray that it may be hallowed, treated as holy, because we ardently, we, we really, really want and desire that due honor may be given to it. That's why we add these words and why grammatically they're attached to it, on earth as it is in heaven. That's how you make sense of it. In heaven, God is hallowed. In heaven, he is treated with the honor that he deserves. In heaven, he is glorified by the angels and the saints who are with him. His name is exalted. He is praised as the one who is holy and set apart from all things. In heaven, his name is hallowed. Here's the question. Is his name hallowed on the earth? Sometimes, but just look around you. God is ignored. He is ridiculed. He is blasphemed. Some people just outrightly defy him and speak so poorly of him. He is not up, his name is not upheld. His reputation is not upheld. It is trashed. It is stepped on. He is belittled. So in other words, his name is not being hallowed. People are not setting him apart, not delighting in him as they ought to, not finding their joy in him, not obeying him at all. And so therefore, this request is so important. God, the glorious creator of the universe, the one who loves us and sent his son for us, is not being upheld and hallowed. And so this is why when we come in prayer, that's our supreme request, Father, your name is not hallowed on the earth. Cause it to be hallowed on the earth as it is already being hallowed in heaven. Father, make this happen. Do this, Father, we pray. That's what we're asking. Now, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, I think everyone will affirm what we just said. I don't think any of this is controversial. So then here's the question. Why don't we pray this so much? Why is this not the supreme request that's always coming out of our mouths in one form or another. I think now that we understand it more, that's going to help. But I also think a big part of the answer is we haven't all seen how this request fits into the giant story of the universe. What I want to show you now is that this request 
reveals to you the ultimate purpose for why God even created the universe. Here you have the purpose on, from the very beginning through all of history on why God has done every single thing that he has done, on why God's going to do every single thing that he's going to do, and how the story's going to end, and all the way into eternity. This request just runs straight through it all. This request is the ultimate end of all things. This is the purpose of the story, the end goal of the story, the middle of the story. It's everything. This is what I want to show you right now. So when you know this story and when you see it with what we're about to do, then you go, I get it now. I see why this request is so important. So this is what I want to do for the next few moments is to tell you this story so that by the end you'll say this is the supreme request and it'll be burning in your heart. You're going to be praying it all the time. Okay, so now we're going to take a giant rabbit trail to tell the big story of the Bible and show how this request fits. This big story has everything to do with something like this. Coca-Cola came on the scene in uh, 1886. Coke, of course, is one of the best-known trademarks on our entire planet. It's worth $265 billion. Any of you have shares in that? No, just keep it to yourselves. That'd be one you would have want shares in a long time ago, right? Here's a fun fact for you. In the last five years, Coca-Cola has spent $20 billion on advertising. Wow, that's a lot of money. Why? Why would Coke spend $20 billion on advertising? Is not the answer. They spend all that money on advertising to try and convince the whole earth that Coke is the greatest soft drink there is so that you'll crack one open and enjoy a Coke for yourself and all the shareholders out there will get rich. Isn't that the reason why? So you could say it this way. This is perfectly fine to say it. Coke spends $20 billion on advertising in order that the name of Coke would be hallowed over all the earth. That the name of that Coke would be set apart from all other soft drinks, especially Pepsi. We all know that's true anyways, right? There's no Pepsi people here, is there? Oh, come on. <laughs> set apart the supreme soft drink of all soft drinks. That's the end goal behind everything that Coke does, behind $20 billion in advertising. It's the ultimate thing. It's the end goal. That's why they spend so much money on it. Now, of course, with Coke, this is all just kind of a little bit silly and a little bit debatable because, of course, it's a little subjective whether Coke is the greatest soft drink on all the earth. I'm already convinced. I don't know if you are. We'll talk afterwards. But this is why they do it, that they would be set apart but of course, this, we're only talking about soft drinks here. This is hardly the most important thing in the world and really doesn't make that big of an impact on your life or my life. But when it comes to the story of the Bible, product placement, I, got, I get no money for this at all, by the way. When it comes to the story of the Bible, that is the theme of the entire Bible. What I want to show you is that everything that God has ever done in the history of the universe is to advertise, if you will, to display the glory, the beauty, and the joy of who he is. That everything he's ever done and everything he ever will do is aimed at this, to show us the kind of God he is. 
his character, what he's like, that our joy would be full, that we would find delight in him, and we would live for the reason for which we were created in the first place. So what I want to show you is that the theme of the Bible is God's great passion to advertise, to display, to demonstrate his character in order that we might know him and find our ultimate joy. So let's walk through the scriptures, the big story of the Bible on this, from very beginning to very end. And even when I use those terms, beginning and end, that assumes time. We're going beyond time on both ends of the scale, okay? So first of all, go back in your mind if you can to a time before there was time. Go back in your mind to a time before there were stars, moons, planets, or the earth. There's only God. There is no material universe. And ponder this question for a moment. What is it that motivated God to create a universe? What is it that motivated him to do this? Why? I mean, why did he create hammerhead sharks? Just odd-looking creatures. Why did he create crabs? I mean, all of us, our knees bend one direction. Crabs bend the other direction. Why do that? So they have to walk sideways all the time. Why did God create a blue whale? Its heart as big as a car. Human beings can literally swim through the veins of a blue, a, a blue whale. And then why did he create a fairy fly whose heart is 0.2 millimeters long? Why create so many colors? Why flamingos? They're pink. Why would he create that? Why not just create a whole world that's maybe two colors or something like that? Why create blackberries and how they taste so good? Why create black holes? Well, the Bible teaches that God created all of this for one ultimate reason. Here's what Psalm 19 says. The heavens are declaring something. They're preaching something. They're, they're advertising something. What is it? The glory of God. And the sky above proclaims, it preaches, it shouts of his handiwork. The whole universe that God creates it's first of all to show the power and the magnificence and the creativity of the creator of the universe. I mean, you think about this. It's partly for you, the universe, but you or I or all the human beings, we're never going to see almost all of it. Who will ever see all the planets and stars, the trillions upon trillions of them? None of us will ever see them. None of us will say, look at that, that's amazing. Even on this earth, I could use the word, trillions of flowers will never be seen. No one will ever stop and go, that's so beautiful. God, you're incredible. And yet he created them all. Why does he do this? Why so much abundance? To display, to advertise, to demonstrate the kind of God he is. To show his glory, his power, his creativity. So God created the heavens and the earth to show all this. So from slugs to snails, from birds to bobcats, from atoms to archangels, they're all made for one reason, to declare the glory of the creator. But it's not just the universe and the planets. That's also why God created human beings. Listen to Isaiah chapter 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So in the first place, God created everything for his glory. He created human beings for his glory. But in the second part of the story, we could say that God has caused 
and will cause all the events of history to also point to the great character, uh, to his great character, and to who he is. How did this story begin? Well, we have to skip lots of parts for the sake of time, but of course, the major beginning of the story is he chooses a nation out of all the nations through which, through whom he is going to work, the nation of Israel. And did he choose them because they were so great? No. That's not why he chose them, but he formed Israel to be a people whom he says in Jeremiah 13 that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. These people are to point everyone to the glory of their creator. And then, of course, as the story goes on, that nation becomes enslaved in the nation of Egypt enslaved for many, many years, and then God brings the ten plagues against Pharaoh, sets the the Israelites free. But here's a question. Have you ever pondered this? First of all, how many plagues were there? You're a silent crowd today. Man, is it that I'm leaving and you're just moved on already? What's happening? How many plagues were there? Ten plagues. Okay, I'll help you out. Ten plagues. Ponder this for a moment. Why did God send ten? Is he not powerful enough to just send one and finish the job? I mean, clearly he could. Why drag this out so long? All these plagues were against Egyptian gods. The power of the Egyptian gods was crushed and God was shown to be the only God because he could crush the Egyptian gods and they're not really real. Why not just do it once? Why send 10 plagues? Well, here's what we read in the book of Exodus. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Here's the key line. So that you may know that there is no one, none like me in all the earth. For by now, God says, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Here comes the big last line when he talks to Pharaoh and he says to him, but for this purpose, Pharaoh... I have raised you up to show you my power and so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God says he didn't just send one plague. He sent a whole bunch. Why would he have done this? Because the nations of the world had turned their backs upon their creator. The nations of the world had created false gods that they were worshiping. They were trapped into all kinds of practices that were destroying human flourishing and not glorifying the one and true creator God. And so God did this whole event, he says, in order that the nations might hear about his character, that there is only one God who is worthy of worship. He wants to to gain a worldwide reputation for his character and for what he has done. And we see this all through the Old Testament. Further in the story, Israel, again, misbehaves, gets put into exile in Babylon, and then God says to them, I'm going to free you from Babylon. And is it because they're a great people and so they so deserve it? Oh, no, no, no. The far, far the opposite. Why does God do it? Because he's committed to something. Here's what Isaiah 48 says. For my own sake, and then he repeats himself. For my own sake, Israel, are you hearing this? I do this for you from Babylon. For how should my name be profaned? I will not allow my name to be profaned. My glory I will not give to another. And then the greatest demonstration of God's passion for his glory is the cross. At the cross, we see God revealing what kind of God he really is like. His name, his character, 
Because you see, there's a sense in which we can respectfully say, God has a big problem. His big problem is that he is a just God. He never does something unjust. He's just. But if he is just, then what should he do with his creation that has ignored him, abandoned him, blasphemed him, disobeyed him in every possible way? If he is just like any just judge, he will punish them for what they deserve. But he's also a loving and a gracious God. He loves sinners. Even though we've turned our backs upon our creator, he loves us still. He pours down his blessing. He causes the rain to fall. He gives us life and breath and everything else. And so he's in this problem, if you want to put it this way, and that he has to uphold his justice, but he also wants to uphold his grace and his love. But we're at the center of it. How could this possibly be? He can't just let us off the hook or be, he'd be an unjust God. But then if he punishes us, that's not so loving and gracious. So God has this problem, so to speak. And yet, this is the point of the cross. Here's a little phrase for you to ponder on. might go against years of your thinking, but it's theologically accurate and hopefully changes the whole way you think. The cross is not, first of all, about you. Of course it's about you and I. But it is not, first of all, about us. It is first of all about what God needs to do in order to find a way that he can be just on the one hand and he can justify us on the other, make us right with him. So he can be gracious and loving toward us and yet uphold his justice. It's first of all in the first place about God restoring the honor that is due to his own name. And of course we get the great benefit and it's his heart for us. This is why the scriptures say that at the cross, Christ was punished in our place. As those famous words from Isaiah 53 say, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Christ, having taken our place on the cross, having paid for our sins, now justice is upheld. Sin has been punished. Anyone who comes to Christ then can come freely and receive God's grace, receive God's love. And so the call goes out again in the middle of the story here. Have you done that? Have you come to Christ and said, I need forgiveness. Thank you for God for sending Jesus to take my place, to be pierced. Notice that substitutionary language for our transgressions, for our iniquities. Thank you for doing that. Forgive me of my sins. That's the middle of the story. So to recap so far, everything that God has done in history from before time, his motivations, right up to the cross so far, it's all for one grand reason, to display, to demonstrate his name, his character, what he is like, that he would receive glory. He created the world to show his glory. He created human beings to show his glory. He created Israel as a nation for his praise and his honor. He freed them from Egypt in order that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He freed them from Babylon that he would, his glory would not be profaned. And then God sent his only son into the world to restore his damaged glory and to ransom us back, sinners who have not loved him, not loved our creator, or given thanks to him. And then we've got to jump ahead for the sake of time. One day Jesus is coming back. Why is he coming back? Again, many reasons could be given, and they'd all be correct if we get them from the Bible. Lots of reasons. 
But once again, what I want you to see here is there is one supreme reason. There's an ultimate goal to which all of history is racing toward, which God is causing all of history to come to. There are many sub-reasons and things like he'll wipe away our tears, that's glorious. He'll give us resurrection bodies, wonderful. We'll be with him, great. All of those things are wonderful. But there's something higher, something above everything, a goal to which all things are heading. Here's a few verses. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 says that on that future day, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So the, the ultimate end goal that day is that Christ would be glorified and we would sit there and go, wow, he's back, look at him. He is so glorious. I love those words. That's going to be the experience of that day. We will marvel at him when we see him face to face. On that day, Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, for the earth will be filled. This is the fulfillment of the Lord's prayer. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. His name will be hallowed on the earth as it is in heaven. So God is working all things to that great day when Jesus returns and to be glorified among his people on that great day, the nations will bow and every tongue will cry out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory and might forever and ever. Or as Philippians chapter 2 says, on that day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And what's the ultimate reason? To the glory of God the Father. Many reasons, many goals, the ultimate end of all things, the glory of God the Father. So, I'm hoping through all of this, you've captured now the big story of the Bible, and now you see, it's no surprise to you now, why Jesus says you ought to make this your supreme and, and the, the highest priority request, because this is what God's all about. This is God's ultimate goal. God's end goal for all things is that his character, who he is, would be declared and people would see it and glorify him forever. So when you pray this request, you're not praying something that God's like, nah, I don't know if I'm really into that. I'll decide whether I want to answer that. No, you already know from what we just said, this is at the heart of God's heart. The end goal of all things is what you're praying for that God would be treated the way he should be treated, that he would be seen for who he really is and receive all the worship and the honor that is due to him. And so that's why one author named Nicholas Ayo writes these words, we ask God to tend to God's own cause and interest. That's what we're doing here. Or as Dale Bruner, the Bible commentator I quoted earlier says, our main concern in life should be that God be treated as God. So, is it captured in your heart yet? This is the big story of the Bible, the big story of the universe. You now can see why would Jesus say this is the supreme request? Because it's the supreme thing in God's mind. It's the supreme thing that God has created the universe for, what all history is for, and where all things eventually will come to. It's the end goal of all things. So, from the grand story of the universe, let's get really practical now 
in just for the last few minutes and ask ourselves this question. How and when do we pray this? First of all, pray hallowed be your name when you encounter anything that opposes God's honor. Do you think that'll ever come up in your day? Now you see how practical this is? In other words, wherever you see, oh, God is being ignored here. Wherever you see someone living in a way, you go, that's not good. God's good plan. They're not living how God has called us to. Wherever you hear someone, this is what I often use this, whenever I hear someone curse God's name using Jesus Christ as a swear word, it just triggers me all the time. Instead of you know, getting mad about it or something, just say, Father, cause your name to be hallowed, that that person would see who Jesus is, that his name would be precious to them, not a swear word. Wherever you come across this, every time your heart is grieved, where something is happening in the world, whether the war in Ukraine, whether it's something in your family, wherever God is not being treated as God deserves to be treated, what a gift you've been given. These three quick words, or four quick words, hallowed be your name. You can pray that so fast. Just let it come off your lips all the time. Father, cause your name to be hallowed in this moment. Here's a second way and time you can pray this. Second, pray, hallowed be your name, when you think of those who do not know Christ. God's name can only be hallowed when people have bowed the knee to God and said, forgive us, make us right. We want to follow you. We want our whole lives to be about glorifying you. And of course, that's not the way the world lives. The world lives for itself, not for the glory of God. This is literally the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A non-Christian, if you want to understand Christianity, is someone who lives more for themselves or even for other people. A Christian is somebody who said, there's a creator. I've sinned against this creator. Oh, but I want mercy. And when I get it from Jesus Christ, when I get forgiven, then I say, I want my whole life to be lived for Jesus. I want everything about my life to show everyone how great God is. That's what Tyler was declaring in baptism today. Jesus Christ is my Savior, and I want to live for him. So whenever you see or you know someone you love, you say, Father, something like, I think of my friend Tony. Father, would you reveal yourself to Tony? He doesn't know you. He's not living for you. Your name is not being glorified in his life. Father, have mercy on him. Reveal yourself to him. Show him who you are and save him, that he would give his life to you and glorify you, and live for you. So pray it when you think of those who do not know Christ. Third, pray that his church would hallow his name. I think of this on all kinds of levels, but the level that's been a burden for me so much in the last few years is every time I hear another scandal of some Christian leader, sadly the Ravi Zacharias's of the world or others, it just, it grieves me to no end. It breaks my heart. It makes me upset. It's the fulfillment of the verse in Romans where it says that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the nations, because of you. And then I quickly think, oh, but there by, but by the grace of God go I. I jump down to Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Because God, I, I think of my own life, if I did something stupid, then people would be out there blaspheming your name. They'd say, ah, oh, those Christians and those stupid Christian leaders all talk hypocrisy. And then people won't glorify you. So Father, the way I often pray this is, Father, lead me not into temptation. Lead us as a church not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one so that your name will be hallowed. Your name will be held up. People will see you for who you really are. So it's partly the negative side is people are always saying, well, these Christians are hypocrites. Sometimes that's true. That's not true all the time, I would emphatically say. But when it's happening, 
and people are blaspheming Christ, then we pray it. Father, hallowed be your name in that person's life. They're not seeing you accurately. Sadly, Christians have not represented you well. So, Father, cause your name to be hallowed in that situation and those people. And then just positively as well, even as I think of you and where you're going as a church, this is how I would pray it. Father, you brought, you created, brought Central Baptist into existence. I was privileged to serve here for these many years. Father, for the sake of your name and your glory, bring the next lead pastor here. Bring someone who will lead well. Bring someone who will preach the gospel. Make this church thrive for the glory of your name. Not for the glory of our names. For the glory of your name in this city, Father, Cause your name to be hallowed by providing for this church all that it needs. That's how I'd pray something like that. Fourth and finally, pray that God would cause his name to be hallowed in your own life. So, of course, as soon as you begin to pray this, if it becomes your supreme request, you'll be forced to look at your own life and say, am I glorifying God's name? Am I living in that kind of way? As 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our whole lives are to be about this. And so then, I don't know about you, but you go, okay, there's some areas I think I'm doing that well. Maybe not over here. And when that happens to you, you quickly go back to our Father in heaven. Quickly come back, Father, forgive me because of Christ. I come to you only through Christ again. Forgive me where I'm not hallowing your name. Father, enable me to live in such a way that my life declares and advertises and demonstrates how glorious you truly are and what you've done for us through your Son. So let me conclude by asking you this question, after you've heard all this. Does this request, does it burn in your heart in a good way? Like, are you, are you kind of, as you're listening to all this, does it excite you? Does, you? does your heart leap forward saying, yes, Father, Hallow your own name on the earth. Does that, are you experiencing that right now? This is, okay, good, thank you. <laughs> this would be one of the ways you can discern the difference, and this is so important. I got one more week after this, and so I'm going to press this home just for another moment. So one of the easiest ways you could tell if you're actually a Christian or if you're just a religious person. And if you read the New Testament, Jesus is constantly harping on this. It is very easy to be like the Pharisees, religious. You could come to church every Sunday. You could give money. You could help other people. You could do all these amazing things, and you would merely be religious, but you're not actually a true Christian. You've not been born again by the Holy Spirit. You're not the new creature that the Bible talks about. How do you know the distinction between those two things? Well, the short answer is, have you asked Jesus to forgive you and, and to save you? But here's a, here's a kind of a experiential way that you could put it. Does this request burn in your heart? When you see in society or in your own life or in others' lives, when you see God not treated well, not represented correctly, does your heart grieve like we read about Lot in the New Testament? He says that when he lived in Sodom, his heart was grieved every single day by what was going on around him. Does your heart grieve? Does it lament? God, you're not being treated properly. People aren't viewing you properly. Does it cause you anguish inside so that you say, Father, Hallowed be your name. It's not happening. Cause it to happen. Does this kind of, does God's reputation matter to you? And then in your own life, are you, do you grieve when you say, oh, I'm, I'm not living, I want to live more faithfully for you. Does that all happen in your heart? Only the true child of God has that experience. That's the distinction between religion 
And someone who's truly a Christian and following Christ, the true child of God, cares about the reputation of the Father, loves the Father, wants the Father to be glorified and for everyone to see how glorious he is. The religious person goes through motions, does good things, and thinks that's pleasing to God, but there's no heart to it. And so as your pastor, just for one more week, I press in on that again to say, have you come to God truly and said to him, Jesus, save me. Father, save me. Make me a true believer. Help me to follow you. This week, practice this request. And just do it. Here's the simple practice. Just wherever you sense God not being treated well, you got your four words. Quick prayers. Wherever you see it. Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name in that situation. Hallowed be your name in that situation. Pray it for a week. See what God does in your heart with this. This is the supreme request. It's the supreme request because it's the end for which God created the universe itself. It's the end goal for which all of history is racing. And it's the end goal to where all things are headed after history into the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, that is our request that you would cause your name to be honored, revered, treated well on the earth as it is already being in heaven. Would you show the world your true character for you are misrepresented so often. Show people that you are our great joy and delight, that you are our good creator. Show your grace that you've given us in Christ, your patience with us, Oh, Father, we pray that you would cause your name to be hallowed on the earth, in this church, in our personal lives, in our marriages, our workplaces, all of our life situations. Cause your name to be hallowed on the earth as it is in heaven. And it's in Christ's name alone that we ask it and pray it. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.